following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right. Welcome this evening. Glad that you're here. This is the Fellowship Bible Church Lord's Table service tonight, first Sunday of March. Is that possible already? Two months gone out of uh, this new year. Seems like we just switched over. Welcome. Isaiah chapter 30, please. Let's turn our Bibles there and read that portion before we come to the uh, message part of our uh, session tonight, our, our hour, hour and 15 together. Isaiah and the 30th chapter, Isaiah chapter 30. And I do want you to really pick up the um, message here. There's a principle in Isaiah 30 that's very important. And uh, we could, it's got to do with Egypt, but we could replace Egypt with a lot of things and the principle still holds. Isaiah 30, woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to do this, listen, and to trust in the strength, in the shadow of Egypt. That's the problem. They were trusting in the strength of Egypt. They were trusting in man, trusting in a military, trusting in a political power. They weren't trusting in God. That's the issue. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For for his princes were at Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Hanas. And they were all ashamed of a people who could, could not benefit them or be help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. It reminds me of Jeremiah when he said, look, if you people go down to Egypt, remember when the people went to Jeremiah and asked him, should we go down to Egypt? And he said, no, but they'd already made up in their minds they're going anyway. And he said, look, if you go down to Egypt because you're afraid of the Babylonians, guess what? I'll send the Babylonians there. You should just stay here. That's what he told them. And then this, the burden against the beasts of the south, Through a land of trouble and anguish, from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper and fiery flying serpent, they will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rehab Hem Shebeth. Now go, write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. What is that saying? In modern parlance, they don't want to hear from God. They do not want to hear from God. Shut off the spigot, turn off the preachers, just don't talk to us. Verse 12, Therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you 
like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, so there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. In other words, he's going to smash it to smithereens, very small pieces. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and as a banner on a hill. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though, and though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. You will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. You see the shift that's happened here since verse 18 now. God is going to judge, but then he's going to restore. Verse 23, then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. There will be on every high mountain, on every high hill, rivers and streams of waters. In the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept and gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. Through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps and in battles of brandishing he will fight with it. 
for Tophet was established of old. Yes, for the king it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. Isaiah 30. All right, let me uh, share with you a message that I prepared earlier this week. Uh, it came uh, just kind of in thinking about different things. And uh, the title of the message, and you'll see the connection ultimately at the end, uh, maybe not until then though. The title of the message is, Why Does the World Hate Christianity? Why Does the World Hate Christianity? Uh, and, and the truth that I've put in the in the in the top of my notes for this section, and these are available on the church website. I didn't print them for you tonight, but I, I answered the question. I said the world hates Christianity because it hates God and it loves sin. Because it hates God and it loves sin. That's a summary of this tonight. But I'll just outline it a little bit in more detail. The title of the message, The World's uh, Hatred Toward Christianity, is just a way to introduce the larger question of why non-Christians act the way they do toward Christians and toward God. Why do they despise Christians and hate God? Why do they hate the message of the gospel? Maybe oversimplifying a little bit, but my title could just as easily have been written this way, Why People Hate Christians, Okay, because the world is just people, after all, isn't it, you know? There's a little bit more to behind it, if you will, to it. Now, I'm not thinking here of, the, of legitimate reasons for the world to be upset at Christians. For instance, in 1 Peter 2.20, the Scripture tells us these words, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And so it's no credit if we sin and are treated harshly. If there's something that professing or true Christians do, which the world finds objectionable because it is objectionable, because it is sinful, then uh, there's no surprise that we should feel the wrath of the world. Think of all the scandals in churches that even the world thinks are scandalous, you know, that we that we, I say, larger, you know, largely naming the church, broadly speaking, have been involved in. Uh, what I'm talking about here is not that. When you do wrong, you should be spanked for doing the wrong. Uh, but what I'm talking about is when the world hates Christians for being Christian. It's kind of an identity thing, isn't it? speaking in terms the world might understand, when the world hates Christians for doing Christian things, not for doing evil things, that's off our table here, but when the world despises Christians for being or doing Christian things, that's what we're talking about. The world is a system. It's, a, it's the culture. It's the mores. That's the characteristic customs or conventions of the community. It's it's the desires, it's the priorities, it's the values uh, of the world. It's the ways of the people of the world. And there are variations, of course, from culture to culture, and we think about those when we travel especially or when we think about transmitting the gospel uh, or the Bible from one culture to another and one language to another. But there are similarities across national boundaries simply because 
of the common lot of human nature and human sinfulness. We're all the same substance, whether we have light skin or dark skin, whether we speak one language or another, whether we live on the high mountains or in the low valleys or anywhere in between, on the plains, we're all the same. We have a common nature and sinfulness. We see the culture, the world, especially in in the sexual revolution uh, today where abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism are sweeping the globe, but you see it in all kinds of other areas as well. And I suppose I should insert here in the message that, you know, as, as, as upset as we are, as triggered as we are by those things that I just mentioned, there are a lot of other things that should upset us as well. Uh, but we should not be shocked, should we? Because these are nothing new under the sun. So when I speak of the world tonight, I, I really refer to this conglomeration of culture and people who operate according to its culture. And I'm going to talk tonight about the role of people in that and then the role of the devil in that world system. So I'm going to list some reasons I found in the scriptures given for why Christians are disliked so much. And we start with John chapter 3 and verse number 19. John chapter 3 and verse number 19. And in this verse of scripture, Scripture says this, and this is the condemnation that light, the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because, why, their deeds were evil. The light is a metaphor for Jesus and his holiness. He came, he came, but people do not desire the light. And the light is holiness, is righteousness, those, that kind of, you know, idea, that semantic range of words. They like the darkness better. Darkness represents that which is apart from God, that which is morally wrong, that which is evil, that which is ethically falling short of the standard of God's glory. Contrast that darkness that the unbeliever loves to live in with the Christian, which of which we're told in 1 John 1, 7, uh, those who are Christians walk in the light even as he is in the light. Okay, So John 3, 19 is a very important verse. Men love darkness, they love sin rather than light, rather than righteousness. And the reason that they love darkness and hate the light is because, it says here, their deeds are evil. People desire to be idolaters. They desire to use God's name in vain. They desire to uh, dishonor their parents. They desire to murder, to steal, to commit adultery, to covet, to commit all kinds of other sins, and, and then to lie to cover it all up. They have those desires. They, their deeds are evil, and because that's the case, that drives them to want to be apart from the light. John chapter 3 and verse number 20 then says, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So they are living in sin. They don't want to come to the light because if they do that, then they will be exposed for what they are, 
for what the, the contrast will be too great for even their conscience to handle. You see, that will come about in the future judgment that their conscience will have to face up to that, but they cannot take it at the present. They don't want it, and so they avoid coming to the light. They hate the light because if they came to it, they would be exposed in their wrongdoing. So they hate the light. Now, you're, why does the world hate the Christian? Well, you're associated with the light, aren't you? Yes. The opposite response is found in people who come to the light. In John 7 and verse 17, the Bible says, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. I remember learning this verse under the instruction of our former pastor years ago and uh, being helped by this. This verse talks about the will, my will. Do I desire the things of God? Do I want to follow Christ? Do I want to do His will? And And Jesus is here saying, if anybody wants to, if anybody wills to, if anyone's volition is moved to do the will of God, He will know whether what He's, you know, the doctrine, whether it's true. He will know whether it's from God or whether Jesus, in this case, speaks on his own authority. And I think it has a broader application that we will understand those things that God would have us to learn and what he would have us to do in our life if we simply decide to follow him. Okay, Hear me now. Have you decided to live for God or are you kind of on that you know, that edge. Well, I want to be saved, but I want to do my own thing. I want to be my own boss. This verse is, is really challenging our, our volition. It's challenging our will. It's challenging our decider. If you will to do the will of God, then he's going to guide you. He's going to take care uh, of all of those things. Don't worry about what's coming down the pike. Just worry about, I say worry, concern yourself with, think about doing the will of God wanting to do the will of God now, let him deal with the details later on. He's good at that. We are not. So, we are seekers of God. But of course, no one in their natural state seeks after God. Don't you believe that? From Romans chapter 3, verse 11, no one seeks God. It's when God, in, you could say, inspires, not in the technical sense of the Bible, but uh, when he moves in the spirit of a person, to be convicted of sin and to want to follow him, then the person seeks after God. So if somebody truly is seeking after God, you know God is working and nothing can stop the work of God in that person's life. John 3.20, John 7.17, Romans 3.11. Now John um, 7, verse number 7, just back up a little bit in John 7 now, it says this, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. I think at this point, it's a little bit early for the world to hate the disciples. They will come to that point later on. They will come to that later on, but it hates Jesus. Why? Because he says, I testify of it that its works are evil. In a way, the world's response to Christians is, is well, we'll connect them to us to Christ in a moment, but 
let me just kind of quickly make that connection and move on without proving it. There, the world's response is a de- response of defensiveness. You see that? They don't want to hear that, th- that their works are evil. They don't come to the light because their works are evil, but then when somebody comes and confronts them with that, it's even worse because you're telling them that their works are evil. When we echo Jesus' message that all people have a damaged, sinful, bad nature, they hate us for that. Why? Because most people are very certain that people are good, except for a few, you know, exceptional cases, you know, the Hitlers and all those guys. Those are the real bad people. But everybody else is pretty good. They like to think that people are basically good with only a few bad apples in the bunch, or, or perhaps those who have been twisted by bad circumstances in their upbringing. That's what caused them to be bad people. But otherwise, they were inherently good. Not true. Not true at all. Its works are evil because its nature is evil. The, world's, the world then hates Jesus because he testifies that its works are evil. They hate us because we testify the same thing he did. Then John fifteen eighteen, just Just pulling out some reasons here, thinking about why it is that the world despises Christianity and our Christ and our God and, and us as well. And the bottom line is kind of this. The world hates Christians because it hates Jesus. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. That's it. So if you experience that hatred, just know that it came to him first. He was the first in line to receive the wrath of the world. Those who hate Christ also hate God the Father. John 15, 23. He who hates me hates my Father also. Look, that's just an axiom, okay? Somebody cannot say to me, well, Pastor, I love God, but Jesus... No, if you don't love Christ, you don't love God because Christ is the Son of God. God sent his son. God loves his son. God's well pleased with his son. If you don't like Jesus, don't tell me that you like God. It doesn't fly, okay? Axiomatic, he who hates me hates my father also, period, okay? It doesn't matter how much protestation to the contrary you offer. It just is what it is. They hate the idea of holiness and the constraints that it demands on their behavior. They hate being told they cannot love whomever they wish, however they wish. They hate people who love the things of God. And this all sounds maybe strong and, and, and unrealistic even. You know, there are many people who kind of mind their own business and don't push their opposition against God. And we're thankful for that in our own Western society. But in their hearts, I wonder what we would find or if we would see a good dose of common grace working to restrain the evil that is in humanity. I mean, you, you, have, to re, you have to know that when there's a, a kind of a, a, a Christian aura around the society that we've had come up over the, coming up over the years, the Judeo-Christian values that we've had, there is a certain restraint of evil, which if you don't have that, the most awful things can occur and people can be involved in the most awful of atrocities against other humans. Those are the cases where common grace has been 
held back and its restraint, its restraining function is not operative very well. But then there are leaders, unbelieving leaders who rise to the position of leadership because their desire and their abilities lead them there and, and they are openly hateful to Christians. We have many of those today, many of those today who cannot do what they would like to do because of the constraints of the system upon them. And we're thankful for that, aren't we? The world hate Jesus, hates Jesus and his followers despite the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 24 of John 15, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated me and my Father. So despite healings, raising people from the dead, all this stuff, they still hated him. And then I want you to look at verse 25. This kind of helps me a lot because I often wonder, you know, how can people do such awful things to other people? How can people be so hateful towards other people? And John 15, 25 answers that in a way. He says, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me. Why? Without a cause, without a reason. This is a quotation from Psalm 69.4, and basically in that psalm, King David is saying, look, I didn't do anything wrong to these people. I didn't cheat them. I didn't steal from them. I, did, I, I treated them rightly, and yet they're still my enemies. They hate me without a cause. That's sometimes the lot of a righteous person. No valid reason. For them to hate David, no valid reason for the world to hate Jesus. He'd done nothing wrong to them except say that he, that they were living in sin. And there are other factors. Perhaps people, you know, uh, hate Christians because they, they're wary of what they don't understand. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Today, people have a built-in despising of Christians when they think, oh, those Christians are meeting and they're going to spread a virus and kill us all. They don't understand that we're demanded by God to meet, to worship together, and we can do so in a safe and prudent fashion. But the world is that way toward us. They lash out in irrational ways without a cause because they don't understand. And for those things, we can be compassionate. But for those that are just, just hating without a cause, hating because they live in evil and darkness and love the darkness rather than the light, we know that, that our vindication shall come and the Lord will have his, his day of judgment with them. Then there's the role of the devil. And we'll just finish with a couple of points here. Revelation 12:17 speaks of a future behavior of our Lord, of, our, of, our, of the devil against our Lord. Revelation 20, uh, sorry, I've got to speak here. Revelation 12 in verse 17, it says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so he's gonna, Satan's going to get frustrated at the end in the tribulation. I can't get at Israel. God's protecting them. So I'm going to go after the remainder of her people on the earth. And I believe that this behavior that Satan is, is exercising here is not a new thing. It's not an innovation for him. He does this all the time over all the ages. He's trying to get the people of God. He is their adversary. 
He is the diabolos. He is the great deceiver. He wants to kill, to steal, to destroy. And he's maintained this pattern for millennia. He is all of those things, and he is a hater as well, and those who follow him share in his hate and his hatred. His followers are just like him. In John chapter 10, it tells us that in verse number 10, it says, The thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. But that is his followers are sharing in those characteristics that he has. False shepherds lead people astray. False religion is set up by Satan and his followers to oppose God. And then there are tons of other examples in the Bible where Satan opposes the people of God, where he exercises really hate towards the people of God. Think of Job. He stood up against Job and incited God in a way after him. In Zechariah chapter 3, he stands there before God and the priest and makes accusations against God's priest. Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4, he stands up against Jesus and tempts him. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he makes himself into an angel of light. He deceives the people of God. He has wiles. Ephesians 6 says when we talk about the armor of God, we have to stand against the schemes of the devil. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.18, he stands against the purposes of God by hindering the messengers of God, keeping them from carrying out those things which they would like to carry out, and he wants to oppose God's people, the Israelites, and God's people, the church. That's what he does. That's his thing. So don't be surprised when the world hates you. Why? Because it's led by Satan, because it hated Jesus first, because the world hates righteousness, the world loves sin and darkness, it does not seek the things of God, it hates God the Father, and it hates Jesus without a cause. That's why the world hates you, because it hates him and all those reasons. The current cancel culture rage is just another manifestation of what we've been talking about here, isn't it? Be at ease, however, dear Christian, because we have nothing to worry about. Jesus was already canceled 2,000 years ago. When Israel professed, they had no other king but Caesar. And the Romans worked a terrible injustice on him and killed him on a cross. Jesus was canceled. And we are in Christ. So we've already been canceled. What do we have to lose? Nothing. What do we do then? We just keep on living for Jesus and ministering for him without worry. We're not in a popularity contest. We know the world hates us already. Jesus told us that. The world has already canceled us. That ship has already sailed. So why are we trying to hold it back? Why? Why do we, oh, we've got to be careful what I say and blah, 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 because I'll get canceled. So we resolve ourselves to live for God and ignore the hype. Preach Christ. People need to know him before they die. And don't worry about cancellation because Jesus was, and you and him were canceled already. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we come to the table now, which represents that event in which our Lord was rejected by the Jews and the Romans, by the Gentiles. And Lord, even when you laid the iniquity of us all upon him, you 
set out your rod of punishment on him. And your wrath was poured out upon him. And he took that wrath for us. Lord, being in him now, we rejoice that we don't have to make ourselves um, somehow um, satisfactory to the world. Our concern is to be satisfactory to you in our conduct and all, and we thank you for that, that we can just set aside all these other worrisome things and recognize that, Lord, the world does hate Jesus and does hate Christianity, and Lord, make sure, I pray, that we do not get ourselves in any situations where we uh, are worthy of some legitimate punishment because of evil we have done. But rather, Lord, if we should have to suffer, that it would be for righteousness' sake and we'd be commended for it. Thank you for this great confidence, even in the midst of this kind of negative message of the feeling of the culture against Christ. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to share the Lord's table elements now. I'd like to invite you to do that. If you have not gotten one of these packets yet, why don't you grab one of those from the table by the back door there. Uh, don't hesitate to, to get up and do that. Uh, we would not want you to withhold participating just because you feel embarrassed about getting up and going to the back. We're giving you that explicit offer and time right now to do that. We're going to uh, share the Lord's table privately, so we're going to have to say uh, goodbye to those that are online at the moment, and um, we look forward to uh, touching base with you all again as the Lord permits. So John will have you uh, switch that over just now. All right, very well. Uh, I, I need to ask a brother to uh, pray and give thanks for the bread, please, as we participate at the table. Is there somebody who would do that? Drew, you've been volunteered, I guess, huh? <laughs> please. Thank you, Drew. You just take the top cellophane there if you can uh, do that and uh, extricate this uh, wafer. I want to remind you that on that night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he gave it to the disciples and they broke it. He broke it and they broke it around the table and shared from that one common loaf, that one common matzah, really. I, loaf is not really the right word. It was more of a cracker, wasn't it? Because it was unleavened. And they shared that at the table representing how each of them was participating in the same, what he said was the body, my body, which is broken for you. And he said to them to eat it all 
in remembrance of him. So I invite you to partake of the wafer that you have there tonight as we give thanks to the Lord for his broken body. wonder if I might ask our brother in the back corner there, Brother Reed, would you be ready to pray for the cup, brother? I think you did last, maybe last month too, but that's okay. Pray for us, please. Amen. Amen. Uh, the Lord led us to ask you, brother, to pray. Thank you for those words. Very wonderful prayer. And that night again, in which the Lord was betrayed, he took uh, another of the elements of the Passover Seder, one of the cups that they shared, and he said to them, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of the sins of many. And he wanted them to drink it in remembrance of him. And think of the richness of that great symbol, that in partaking of the symbol of his blood, you're saying, I am partaking of the actual salvific benefits of that blood and how that reminds us of what he did. So if you could carefully open that and then we can partake together. We ask the Lord to bless us as we remember him in his appointed way with the cup. Father, we thank you for the salvation that you have richly provided in which you have freely offered, which you have widely proclaimed, and which you have specifically applied to us in this church. O Lord and God, you did not have to do this for us. 
You're perfectly independent of, of your creation and perfectly happy in the triune fellowship that you shared with the Son and the Spirit from eternity past and shall until eternity future. But you ordained, God, that you would redeem to yourself a people who would be able to serve you and love you and live with you and for you and enjoy your glorious presence and that shared amongst the thrice holy God, the three persons of the Trinity. And Lord, we thank you for this, that someday we'll all be gathered around the heavenly throne. I long for that day, Lord, when each one of us has passed through the trials and tribulations of life and are able to be past them and be before the throne and together worshiping perhaps on one of those days of our first 10,000 years, we could gather like we have gathered tonight and just reminisce with one another about the greatness of our God and the wonder of salvation and, and to see the marvel of the transformation that will come upon us each as we do that. Whatever that works out to be, Lord, we, we don't know, but we know that it will be a glorious blessing And Lord, we thank you for that blood which was spilt that we might have it. What a wondrous blessing in God's word. To know that our sins are blotted out. We know this, Lord, because your word tells us. We know that there is no other way to have our sins remitted but the blood of Christ. We reflect on the amazing grace and we wonder how can it be Lord, you are a great God to us, and we thank you for that. Keep our feet on the paths of righteousness this week. Keep our not only our feet, our minds. That's really where the battle is, Lord, that we would uh, hate sin, that we would despise that which so captivated our attention before we were saved, and even now vies for that attention And Lord, that we would fill our minds with things above. We would fill our time with things that are holy and productive for the name of Christ. And that, Lord, in any affliction, we would repair to you that we would trust you and not fly down to Egypt, as it were, looking for assistance from the world, but first from our God. Lord, bless your people, I pray. Keep watch over each one. May we be mindful of each one, especially those that are suffering in a particular way right now. And Lord, keep us that we might be uh, your servants. Lord, we're looking for an opportunity this week to give a word of the grace of God to some poor lost soul who doesn't know the way, but maybe they know us and we know the way. We can point them to the way, the truth and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do that. Give us those open doors. In Jesus' name, amen.